Let's turn in uh, God's Word to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. This evening we'll be looking at verses 2 through 7. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Before we read God's Word, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, once again we come pleading with You that You would receive our worship, that You would grant us Your Holy Spirit and Your grace. Teach us Your ways, as well as show us Your Son, Jesus Christ, that Your name would be praised. And that your people would be comforted and encouraged in Him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 7. These are God's words. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood. But this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end, upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Those are God's words. Now, hopefully you remember where we are. Isaiah has been charged in the last chapter to ignore the counsel of the covenant breakers and unbelieving in Judah to not join in with them in chapter 8 verse 12 and say a confederacy to go along with turning and desiring Assyria's help as well chapter 8 verse 19 not to turn to the spiritists and the the necromancers the magicians and the wizards to determine the future but they are to do what? they are to come and to seek the Lord and to fear Him verse 13 they are to Go to the law and the testimony, verse 20. Those who would go 
that false way, like unbelieving Judah, that false way that the Lord warns against, they will keep looking for answers and deliverance, wandering, we heard last Lord say, wandering everywhere for safety and they won't find it. And they'll end up cursing the King and God, in which they are driven to darkness because of their darkness. Yeah, we also heard last Lord's Day, verse 1 of chapter 9 that we read, which says again, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. These northern parts of the northern kingdom of Israel, the most corrupted and the first to be judged, we heard, even these places there is hope because the light of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ would come, as we heard from Matthew's gospel, chapter 4. Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast, and the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and in the land of Nephtalim, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people, verse 2, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. The first thing then that we're looking at this evening as we continue from last Lord's Day, the first thing that we see this evening is the deliverance, the deliverance that's needed. The, the, the deliverance needed. You look at verse 2 again, which speaks of what was fulfilled by Jesus. And then in verse 3, the gospel of salvation spread to the Gentiles promised. It says, verse 2, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Now we're going to, uh, I think, come back to these verses uh, later uh, and like you know in the future, not today. The nation uh, would be multiplied. And uh, the church of God would expand among the nations. That's the picture. And the picture then is taken up of Israel and Egypt and also under the oppression of the Midianites. Verse 4, For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. The picture there of the Lord breaking the rod of oppression, the burdens even as He judged Egypt in the days of the Exodus, as in the days of Gideon, uh, when He delivered them from the oppression of the Midianites. And so great would be the victory, that verse 5. It would be to the complete destruction of all enemies. Not like normal battles where there is uh, perhaps great confusion, there's great uh, continual conflict, as they're battling, and there's loss of life on both sides. It's not going to be like that, where both sides, the, even in the passage here in verse 5, it talks about the, the garments being bloody. It's not going to be like that, he's saying. But this will be like an army 
rushing into a burning fire with great fuel. And what happens, of course, they're destroyed. Verse 5, it says, For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. It would be a complete victory and deliverance. And the deliverance would come by means that you would not think of. What well, you would think of, how, does, how, does, uh, how is a battle won? How is victory won? Well, one army is stronger than another. As we sing that we don't trust in horses and chariots, but that's what we think of at a battle. That's what wins battles. Chariots, horses, men, whoever's stronger wins. Or whoever has the better ground, the higher ground. They win. And so he says here uh, that the means by which this deliverance that will bring a victory over all things will be a deliverance that is not by means of which you think you don't expect. You would never think of this. Verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The deliverance in view is looking far beyond, far beyond the deliverance of Judah from Israel and Syria. The deliverance from even the oppression of Assyria a little later. Was Judah delivered from Assyria in the time of Hezekiah? And some of you probably don't know that, but they were. They were delivered from Assyria in the future, in, in the time of King Hezekiah. But it was not an ultimate deliverance because later, soon after that, comes Babylon. And Babylon takes uh, Judah into exile away. And that's what we sang of this evening in Psalm 137. The deliverance spoken of here in chapter 9 is not one of short-term Deliverance or a one-time thing, but of a greater and lasting deliverance. Not merely deliverance from some miseries of this life, like Israel and Syria coming up and battling against Judah, which can be grievous. But this is speaking of complete deliverance, even from the wrath of God and eternal death. This is the great deliverance resulting in everlasting life. All of Judah's problems and miseries, we know we're all symptomatic of this, the greater of all miseries, the misery of sin and darkness that we heard at the end of chapter 8, and the condemnation of that sin, which is eternal damnation. The means that we would not think of as means of deliverance from all the miseries of this life and the life that uh, the life to come from sin and guilt and, and death, that the means of this deliverance would come by extraordinary means. It says, by means of a child. A child will deliver. And it says here in verse 6, a child is born. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And we ask, if we're being honest, what does that mean? A child is born, a son is given. We believe, friends, that the second part, the son is given, the son being given refers to the Son of God. For 
God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Hebrews 1. God hath in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He hath appointed, heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds. He was a child born, right kids? In the womb of the Virgin Mary. He was a child born. And His name, we've already studied, is Emmanuel, God with us, present. God present with us, His people. We saw that from chapter 7. Therefore, the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call His name Emmanuel. A child born. A son given. And that sonship refers to His divine sonship. But He is born of the Virgin Mary. And then notice what verse 6 says. And the government shall be upon His shoulder. He bears the responsibility of office. Our Lord Jesus Christ is King. Jesus is the King of the kingdom of, first we could say, the kingdom of His power, whereby He executes the decree of God of, 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 in providence. All of God's works of providence. Alright, Revelation 5, He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah, opening the seals of the book we heard this morning, of the divine decrees and governing all things and ex- executing all things on behalf of His church. Christ, friends, has the kingdom of power and therefore is King. And according to the Father's good pleasure, Christ governs as King all His creatures and all their actions. But within that, there is also, hopefully some of you remember, there is a kingdom of grace. Christ as King sends forth His Word and Spirit to bring sinners unto subjection, zealous, happy, willing subjection to Himself as King through the Gospel. Acts 1 begins with, Uh, Luke, referring to the Gospel of Luke, if you remember the very first verse, or something like what it says, "...the former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until that day in which He was taken up, after that He, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom He had chosen." Christ's earthly ministry was the beginning of His doing and teaching as the God-man. What that means, friends, what we're shown here, is that the book of Acts tells us of His continuing to do and to teach from the right hand of God as King. That's the kingdom of grace. And as He sends forth His Gospel and sends forth the Holy Spirit according to the promise of the Father, and as He adds to the church such as should be saved... Right, Acts 2, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. He's building His church, friends, as King. And that's the kingdom of His grace. Where His grace is shown and offered and, and received. He's building His church. Think of Lydia, whose heart the Lord opened. It's the Lord, the King, building His church, sending forth His gospel, enabling His servants with all boldness to preach the Word and and ascending the Holy Spirit into the hearts of sinners, renewing those hearts and their wills, and that they're made willing and able in the day of His power to trust in the Savior and King Jesus Christ Himself. Friends, the government 
shall be upon his shoulder is the promise from Isaiah. And it is upon his shoulder today. As king, he will rule and the burden of governing will be his. What is our greatest need? And that's a big question that we've been looking at asking, uh, that Judah should have been asking and was asking and answering wrongly. They... The unbelieving of Judah, the covenant-breaking people of Judah had been asking, what is our greatest need? Our greatest need, they were answering, our greatest need was deliverance from Israel and Syria. And the answer, how do we get that? How do we get that? Is from going to Assyria and trusting in Assyria. And others uh, were saying, well, let's go to the spiritists and the, the mediums and the... Uh, the spiritists. And they'll find out, we'll find out what is going to happen in the future so that we can then act accordingly. But their deliverance wasn't to be from Assyria. Assyria would actually be to their great hurt. That which they thought would deliver them came to destroy them. But the Lord holds forth the answer time and time again, friends. He holds the answer to that great question, what is our greatest need? And He answers it again and again. The great deliverance promised is a great deliverance in what you might not expect. In Christ Jesus, through a promised Savior, from the darkness of sin and guilt and the miseries of sin and the judgment of God upon it for all eternity. There is deliverance found in Him. And the greatest need is to be delivered. And so the answer to that, to be delivered, we need to be turning to Christ. The people were looking for deliverance, though, only from their outward enemies. But what they are given is a promise and prophecy concerning the Savior of sinners. That's verse 6. They thought they needed deliverance simply from the pressing problems of the present. And how often we ourselves think the same way. You think, well, my great need is to be delivered from this problem and and that problem. The problem is at home and and work and marriage and this relationship and that relationship of all and various kinds. But that's not your greatest need. That's never your greatest need. If you are not a true Christian, what you need above all else is deliverance from darkness and sin and guilt and the wrath of God. That's what you need. And you might have problems that are not those things. But that's what you need. You might have problems above and beyond. I'm in darkness and sin and there's eternal death on the horizon, the wrath of God. But those things are all eclipsed by the greatest need of salvation needed in Christ Jesus. You need salvation from sin and salvation from the wrath of God. And you'll say to me, well, you don't understand, Pastor. I, of course, do not understand. I don't, but God does. He knows, He understands, and He gives to Judah not what they thought they needed, but what they actually needed, the truth of the Gospel of the Savior and the King, Jesus Christ. He's telling them of the One who can deliver them from their greatest need, from their greatest danger, from their greatest miseries. And He's saying the same today to you. He's saying 
he was saying then to Judah, if only the church of God today would, would stick to its God-given mandate and preach not what people think they need, but what, what they do need. The church of God must not falter at this point. The cry of relevance needs to be ignored. That's very big in our day. Well, that's not relevant anymore. The gospel's not relevant. Or, or Christ is not relevant to this situation, this problem I have. And that cry of relevance needs to be ignored. Because the gospel is and always will be relevant. Just as he shows here. He shows that the gospel is the, is of primary relevance. It's, a, it's the most important thing. Whether you're seen to be, whether it's seen to be relevant or not, it always is because the Lord says it is. What is needed is by the Spirit of God, the people see its relevance because they are brought to see their guilt and their sin and that they're in darkness. And the church is, is not in the business of then communicating a message based upon the idea of what people think they need. That's what, if you go back to chapter 8, that's what all the things that the people think they need. The church is to be the pillar and ground of the truth. And the testimony of the church according to the Scriptures, the law and the testimony, is to not alter the message of what people think they need uh, to what people think they need, but to declare from the Scriptures what God says and always has said they do need. And that is the Gospel. The woman of Samaria at the well, she thought she knew what she needed. She needed deliverance from having to go to the well every day. But Jesus told her what she really needed. The water that gives life and is living. Him. The people of God should be conformed to Christ in this. Yeah, you say. But you have, or people say, you have to be though considerate of where people are. And people can't see that. They can't see that. You have to start somewhere else and then eventually get to the gospel. But why do they not see it? Why do they not see it when they don't see it? That kind of makes you confused. Why do they not see it when they don't see it? Because it's only by the Spirit of God that they can be brought to see it. The Spirit of God uses His own truth. And so the church isn't telling people the truth about sin and judgment and the need of the Gospel of Jesus Christ being the Savior of sinners and freely offering Christ to sinners. Of course they don't see it. Because the Spirit is... Uh, used of God to go with the truth of the Word preached, the Gospel, and to work that into hearts that they believe. But if the truth isn't there, then how are they going to see? And now in our day, we might, we might even preach it well. We might preach the Gospel well. And they still don't see it. But we must preach it still and proclaim it and testify the gospel still. The church's agenda is set by the Lord alone and His Word. It's not by popular opinion 
When the church listens to the world, as it does often in our day, and produces its message based upon what the world thinks and what's popular and what they think that like a pastor thinks the people need to hear, the result is that the church really becomes irrelevant itself. That's what young adults today are realizing, it seems. Because of the false messages that are taught based upon society, the messages are taught based upon society, and they're false in which we live, instead of based upon the truth. And there, those young people are growing up, they're seeing that. And they say, this is no different than the world. What's the point of the church then? And it's no point if that's the message of the church. There's no point then. The church isn't just perceived as irrelevant in those, in the, those, by those in darkness, but it has become irrelevant when the church stops being what the church is called to be and preaching and proclaiming the truth. There is nothing more redundant and useless than a church that no longer holds forth the truth of God. The church, by desiring to be perceived as relevant, becomes truly and utterly irrelevant. And so the Lord sends the true message here concerning deliverance from sin and guilt and darkness that it is alone found, salvation alone is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. The great deliverance that sinners need, that all people need, is through the God-man, Redeemer, when, and when by His grace they are brought to a willing submission unto Him. By faith they will be saved. The deliverance needed. The second point this evening, the only true hope. The only true hope. Verse 6 again, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulder. And His name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He says first that His name shall be called Wonderful. The cause of all wonder and amazement. Psalm 77 says, Thou art the God that doest wonders. Our Lord Jesus is called Wonderful. Why? Because He's God. That makes Him by itself and sufficiently and infinitely wonderful. And He became a man. God manifested in the flesh. Surely that's wonderful. If we cannot wonder and marvel at God becoming a man, we should wonder how, at how utterly we have declined in wonderment and amazement in our hearts. If we cannot wonder at God becoming man. God manifested in the flesh. There is nothing like this in all of the world, in all of history, except what we find in Jesus Christ. And people try to illustrate it, but it's impossible in this world to illustrate God becoming man. So they break the second commandment, right? They make pictures like the one out there in the Bible we were talking about, right? that I call and we call Bob in our family. Right? They try to illustrate God become man. But they can't do it. The world cannot do so. It's impossible. 
that the second person of the Trinity, of the Godhead, becoming man, and still is today, God and man, when He was in this world, friends. He caused people to stand in awe and wonder, being amazed, performing wonders. We recently heard in Matthew 8, but the men marveled, saying, what manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey Him? He causes wonder to flow forth from His lips for graces in His words. And so they were astonished at His doctrine, Matthew 7. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at His doctrine. For He taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes, not of this world. And He did so of great because He's great of wonder that He did what no man could have done. He bore the guilt of sin and brought in everlasting righteousness. Friends, He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. These things are wonderful. His person, His incarnation, His righteous life, His miracles, His speech, His doctrine, His accomplishing redemption, His resurrection, His exaltation to the right hand of God. These things and many... We could go on and on for, for years just sitting here. Now talking about all the things of which He is wonderful. These things are all wonderful. And that's why He's named Wonderful. Wonderful Counselor. And maybe wonderful is to be linked with Counselor. That He is a wonderful Counselor. We don't really know. It's hard to say from the Hebrew. But kings, if we think of Counselors, now kings have Counselors. Kings have counselors. Think of Rehoboam. And early in 1 Kings, after Solomon dies, Rehoboam becomes king. And the people of Ephraim come to him. If you remember, that's what we were looking at in family worship recently. And what does he have? He has counsel, counselors come to him. His counselors come to him uh, to guide and give advice. And he brought in the older men. He didn't like them, what they said. And so he brought in his friends, the younger men, as counselors, who were much more harsh, and they, he followed their counsel. And it divided the kingdom, you remember, of the Israel and Judah, northern kingdom and southern kingdom. So counselors give uh, advice, guide. But this king... This king is the counselor. This king is... That's the point, friends. No one has given him counsel or taught him or given advice to him. His wisdom, he has wisdom without measure. In him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In him, men and women and children are made wise unto salvation. Isaiah 28, it says, This also cometh forth from the Lord of hosts which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. Friends, King Jesus is a wonderful counsel. He is the Word of God. It is in Him that God has spoken. And so it says, you know, John's Gospel, chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And a few verses later, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory of, as the only, uh, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And He's now exalted at the right hand of God the Father. He now executes the office of a prophet. 
right kids? The office of a prophet. Right? By revealing to us by His Word and Spirit the will of God for our salvation. And that's what He's doing this evening in Isaiah chapter 9. He reveals His truth. He makes known His secrets to His friends. He opens their eyes. That takes the veil off. He reveals to grant understanding of Him and the Scriptures. John 15, He says, Ye are My friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of My Father I have made known unto you. Why is He called them friends? For all things that I have heard of My Father I have made known unto you. And so He brings His friends into the knowledge of the truth. He's the one who guides and counsels us. He brings His friends to the knowledge of the truth. Psalm 25, The secret of the Lord is with them that fear Him, and He will show them His covenant. If you are to know God, you must know Jesus. If you are to increase in the knowledge of God, it must be in Jesus. Then he's called also by the name the Mighty God. The Mighty God. Jehovah's Witnesses uh, should be going crazy over this. Is Jesus really God? That's what they say. They, they ask that question. They say, no, He's not really the God, Jehovah. He's not Jehovah. Jehovah's Witnesses would have it to be perhaps a Mighty God. Not the Mighty God. But the Hebrew expression here is the same as we'll find in chapter 10. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. And Jeremiah 32, Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands and recompensest, ew, that's hard, and recompensest the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is His name. And so the Hebrew, like the English translation, is exactly the same. Jehovah of hosts is called who? The mighty God. The mighty God. And King Jesus is called here the mighty God in Isaiah chapter 9. And so then the Lord Jesus is Jehovah of hosts. The child that is born is the Lord of hosts, mighty in battle. He has counsel. And might and power. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. King Jesus is Jehovah manifested in the flesh. The child is the Son of God. The child born is the Son of God given. Isaiah 36, it says, I say, sayest thou... But they are but vain words. I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom dost thou trust that thou rebellest against me? And here are men who are saying, I have counsel and might, but the Lord Jesus actually does have counsel and might. In, in Isaiah 36, it's men who are saying, we have counsel, we have might, and then, but it's really true. Isaiah chapter 9, it's the Lord Jesus who has true counsel and might. And He is strong in battle. He comes forth as God manifested in the flesh to destroy the works of the devil. He says to His disciples 
In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The Lord Jesus is, chapter 7, Emmanuel, God with us. And yet His name is Jesus, that He will save. And so He saves His people from their sins. He will conquer sin, Satan, and death. He's also then called the everlasting Father. And you say there, well, that doesn't make sense at all. Right? That doesn't make sense. How can Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, be the everlasting Father? Because He's the Son. How is the Son the Father? There are three persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And here He's referring to Christ the Son. Calling Him by the name of the Everlasting Father. So how is Christ the Everlasting Father? When the term uh, Father is used here, it's not speaking of the persons of the Godhead at all. In the Old Testament, if we were to study and know it better, kings are called fathers. The father of the people. And you can consider just one king, King Abimelech. His very name means the first part of his name uh, means father. The second part of his name means king. And so he is the father king because the king was seen as a father, a caring father of the people. And so when Christ is called the everlasting father, it's not speaking of his being one of the three persons in the one Godhead. It's not, ta- it's not calling him God the father of the triune God. It's referring to his kingship. He's the everlasting king. Who cares for his people like a father who cares for his children? And then he's called, lastly, the Prince of Peace. Because he gives peace to his people. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through the blood that he has shed, through his atonement and reconciliation that we have in him with God. That peace with God, the removal of guilt and enmity, hostility with God is the basis in which... Uh, on which the Spirit gives the peace of God in the hearts of God's people. This is given in this life for the Christian, to those who truly believe. It is perfected in the life to come. Christ in this world gives His people a peace in the midst of tribulations in the world. And in the world to come, He will perfect that peace. And there will be no tribulation at all. In the world to come, the peace of God's people will be complete. And so here they have peace with God. They have forgiveness of sins only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have their consciences purified, delivered from the fear of death and torment and the wrath of God. They know fellowship with God, which the the world knows nothing about. But they still have the conflict of the world, the flesh, and the devil in this world. They have that inner conflict that Paul has in Romans 7 where he doesn't do what he wants to do, which is righteous. He keeps sinning. And that which he doesn't want to do, he keeps on doing. He keeps sinning instead of uh, keeping from sin. But in the world to come, we'll have perfect peace. And so, friends, the only true hope is found in King Jesus, who is called by the name, Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. 
And then finally, in verse 7, the kingdom's coming. The kingdom's coming. It says there, of the increase of his government and peace, shall, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The increase of the prosperity, uh, the increase, the prosperity of his kingdom and peace shall have no end. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is used of the various phases of that kingdom. Even in the Old Testament, as the Spirit of God brought the elect to trust in the coming Savior, the coming Messiah, there is that kingdom spoken of. But when our Lord Jesus Christ came into the world, there was a great move forward in that kingdom. In the progress of that kingdom. That's why it was proclaimed... The kingdom of heaven is at hand. As we even heard this morning, because the king was coming. The king had come. Christ being born was the king coming into this world. And he's upon the throne of David, it says, verse 7. As the exalted redeemer fulfilling that promise, the covenant promise from 2 Samuel 7. As the son of God with power born of the seed of David according to the flesh. He fulfills the types and the promises concerning the throne of David. This is not speaking of some earthly millennial reign in Jerusalem, but of Christ now. The government is upon His shoulders. He is at the Father's right hand. He is exalted above all principality and power now. He is the head over all things to the church. And that kingship of Christ is manifested in the advance of the gospel as He causes His truth to prevail. Like in Ephesus in Acts 19 where it says, So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Christ the King there displaying His kingship. In Acts 19, when in the midst of the kingdom of His power, He sends forth His Holy Spirit and establishes justice and judgment by the renewing of hearts of sinners and bringing them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and growing that kingdom of grace. So then His kingdom, His kingship, and His kingdom of grace will reach to its great conclusion when He comes in great power and glory and when He judges all His and our enemies and casts them into outer darkness forever and ever. Then the kingdom of power shall be given up to God. 1 Corinthians 15. Then the kingdom of His power shall be given up to God, but His kingdom of grace, His kingly bond and headship of His church will go on in eternal glory. That's why the people of God pray, Thy kingdom come. That's why we pray Thy kingdom of grace. They desire, God's people desire the vindication, the honor of Christ, the advance of His truth, to see sinners Individually, families, whole nations bowing the knee to Jesus Christ in this world, loving uh, that God's people love His appearing, long for the day when His name shall be honored beyond all contradiction, when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do we love this King, Jesus Christ? Do we pray for the coming of His kingdom? Do we hope in Jesus? Do we find our deliverance in Him alone? Do we pray for the vindication of His honor? For the advance 
and spread and progress of the gospel and His kingdom in the world. And the coming of the King in all glory. Today there is a deliverance that you need. It's found alone in Christ. The only solid hope found is found in Him. And so we pray, may His kingdom come. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray, may Your kingdom come. We pray that You would advance the gospel in these days. That the nations and families and individuals would turn unto Christ. That the Gentiles would turn to Christ. That the Jews would turn to Christ. And that You would uphold Your people. And that You would come again in glory. And destroy completely the kingdom of Satan. Your great adversary and ours. That You would then be exalted forever and ever as King. We are thankful that You are the wonderful King. Our Counselor. Our mighty God and our everlasting Father who cares for us as King. And the Prince who has brought us all peace in Himself by shedding His blood on the cross for all of our sins and for the condemnation and the wrath of God that we deserved. And so, Father, reconcile all of us to Christ, Your Son. Reconcile us to God through Christ, even by sending Your Holy Spirit in great power, uniting your spirits and His work with the Word of truth, that Your kingdom of grace would grow and that we would respond with great praise and joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.